All right. Thank you, Sarah. Um, can you turn to the person next to you and say, God's going to talk to you today? Okay. Uh, can you say to them, don't distract me? Can you say, put your cell phone away? Uh, may we have the attitude of that young boy that Sarah talked about who earnestly sought God uh, regardless of the things that were going on around them and regardless of the people uh, who might seek to distract them. Let's encourage one another to help us to meet with the Lord together this morning. Amen? I don't know if you've ever read a book by Bob Beale. I haven't read it, but I've heard about it. Bob Beale is a, uh, he's, he's an author. He's a, maybe a, a psychologist, but um, he talks about, I know we've got a lot of teachers, we've got a lot of elementary school teachers in, in our midst, and I'm not sure that we have any who teach fourth grade. Any fourth grade teachers here? Okay, so here's Bob Beale's uh, hypothesis after doing all this research. Um, every grade is important growing up, but he says that fourth grade is uh, one of the most decisive years in the life of a young person growing up. Uh, fourth grade is where uh, so many changes begin to happen in the life of a child. It's in fourth grade where if you ask adults to think of your earliest childhood memories, if you listed them out, uh, he did this multiple times and said that the majority of people uh, had a memory from fourth grade that stood out to them. It's a time in which our identity is beginning to be formed. It's a time where you realize you, you make this shift from everyone is just like me to everyone is not just like me. And in fourth grade, you make this shift where you begin to realize that I am one of a kind. There's nobody quite like me. And if words are given to affirm that, then their sense of worth and value and identity really get formed in a healthy way. But when they realize there's no one like me and words of affirmation and encouragement are not put into a person at that time, then it begins to negatively shape their worldview. It's in fourth grade we begin to realize that this world is not this idealistic utopia that we grew up thinking it was supposed to be. Life isn't a fairy tale. Mom, mom and dad's marriage don't always end happily ever after. It's the last year in the age of innocence for a young child as he or she grows up. It's where they begin to realize that the scary things we read about in books could actually really happen to me and the people that I care about. And it's there that they also begin to realize that the heroes that they grew up idolizing, well, there's actually a lot about them that isn't so heroic after all, where they begin to realize that the failures of people affects even the heroes of their lives, when they realize that the greatest of men at the end of the day are just that, they're just men. Fourth grade can be a wake-up call for a lot of people. Now, I'm not trying to talk to us about fourth graders today, but what I do want to do is I want to invite us into a fourth grade awakening where we begin to realize as we've gone through this series on the courage pourers profile. If we look at the life of a man named Joseph who was so good at encouraging people that they called him Barnabas, this guy that I consider to be the most important person outside of Jesus in the New Testament, we're going to realize that he and his best buddy Paul, well, heroic though they may be, at the end of the day, are just mere men. We're going to look in Acts chapter 15, and we're going to see 
a really tragic misunderstanding, if you call it, a disagreement. Whatever you call it, after the passage we read today, we will no longer hear from Barnabas for the rest of the book of Acts. This globe-trotting and world-changing, courage-pouring hero of heroes will no longer be mentioned from this point forward. We're going to read from Acts chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 36, but I want to set this up by reminding us that in last week, Acts chapter 13, we saw Paul and Barnabas go out on the first missionary journey that the church has ever sent out. From Antioch, they go and they minister in a bunch of different places. And as they're going, it's Paul, it's Barnabas, it's their intern, a guy named John, who we know as Mark. They called him Mark. Uh, We know as the gospel writer, Mark. As they're going at a certain point in the journey at a place called Pamphylia, Mark ends up saying, all right, you know what, guys? Um, I don't want to be part of this anymore. And he leaves, and he goes back down south to Jerusalem while the rest of the mission trip continues. Okay, we're not sure why, what exactly happened, but the Bible says that Mark left them. Fast forward, they get back to, uh, from that mission trip, they go back to Antioch. The church in Antioch sends them to Jerusalem. So Barnabas and, and, and Paul are the leaders at the church in Antioch, this global multi-ethnic church. The leaders in Jerusalem are Peter, James, and John, the three of Jesus' closest disciples. So two churches here. Barnabas and Saul finish this missionary journey, and they go back to Jerusalem. And from there, they come back, and Paul says, you know what? Let's go back to those churches that we went to on our first mission trip. Kind of what we do in the Dominican Republic, what we do in Ecuador, what we do in different mission trips, is we go back to see the work that God is doing in order that we might encourage them in their journey. So that's what Paul wants to do. And so as he's forming this team, they're taking applications, and Mark turns in his application. And Barnabas is like, yeah, dude, let's, Mark wants to go again. And Paul looks at it, and he says, not a chance. Acts 15, verse 36, this is God's word. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the brothers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. This is God's word. And sadly and tragically, the last time we hear of Barnabas in the book of Acts, this man who for 15 years had been BFF, but that F forever ended at a certain point. Tragic, devastating. The best of men are, at best, mere men. So what do we see here? As we look at this profile of Barnabas, whose courage pouring was so contagious that Paul became a courage pourer, what do we see in this last moments of this historical record of Barnabas? Three thoughts here. First thing, courage pourers believe that everyone deserves another chance. If you want to 
pour courage, and that's the word we get, uh, the word encouragement from, a person who pours courage. If you want to encourage people, you want to be an encourager, if you want to be a Barnabas who raises up a nobody like Saul into the greatest missionary ever, Paul, if you want to be a courage pour into your child, into your youth students, into your house church members, into your friends, you want to be a courage pour, the first thing that we see in this passage is that you've got to believe that everyone deserves a second, another chance. I'm not talking about second only, but for some of us, man, I'm not like on my, my, my billionth chance. But still, I need people who are going to say, you know what, DL, you deserve another chance even after you screw up. Courage pours believe that everyone deserves another chance. So we're not altogether sure what happened, but Mark is a deserter in the eyes of Paul. He quit on them. We're not altogether sure why, but if you read the records as Pamphylia, if you chart the journey, okay, one of the things that we understand is that in that missionary journey, Paul, Barnabas, and Mark, as they're going, Pamphylia is the easy part of the journey. It's easy. It's smooth sailing. They get to this island, and from there, it's where Mark says, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. And so he quits, and he goes back to Jerusalem. If you look at the rest of the journey, you see that the journey would take them over mountains into hostile territories. As you read through the book of Acts, the two two chapters prior, you see when Paul and Barnabas get to Lystra, Paul gets stoned. Okay, not like on drugs, but he gets beat with rocks because they don't like the message that he's preaching. And they think that he's dead. He's left for dead until finally they pick him up and say, let's go. And he's like, all right, I'm good. I'm alive. As long as I'm breathing, I'm going to take the gospel to the next town. So they go to Derby. Persecution hits them in all of these different places. And it could very well be that when Mark saw the going get tough, the week got going. And Paul looks at Mark, and he says, this guy quit on us when we needed him the most. When I was getting beat up, and I was getting jacked up, and I was persecuted, he bailed on us. I don't want to take that guy. This is spiritual warfare, you understand. We're going to the mission of God. The kingdom of God is going forth. Uh, the, The kingdom of darkness is fighting against us. We can't take him. For whatever reason, he quit. In Acts 12, 12, it says that there's a great gathering of believers when Peter was in prison, and all the believers gathered at the home of one lady, and this lady was Mark's mother. And so what we see there is that Mark's mom was a baller. She had a lot of money. She had a lot of money, enough to have a huge house where all these people could, li- could come and congregate. And so the speculation is that Mark was a spoiled, rich young man. The other speculation is that, well, that's not speculation, that's clear, but this is another speculation. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, Jesus has an encounter with what we know is a rich young ruler, rich person young, and he had power. He was a governor. He was a leader in some area. And he asked Jesus, how can I find life eternal? And Jesus says, sell everything you've got and follow me. And Matthew and Luke say he went away sad, but Mark of the, is the only one who says that Jesus looked on him with compassion and he went away sad for he had great wealth. Mark adds this little detail in there and some commentators believe that it was Mark writing about himself as that rich young ruler who said, I cannot give everything to follow Jesus until later. For whatever whatever it is that's true, one thing we know is that he was from a wealthy family, and when the going got rough on the mission field, he quit and he went back home. 
And Paul says, there's no room on this team. The, the church is going forth. The mission has got momentum. We cannot take him. We can't take him. Because Paul was a passionate man. And in his passion for the mission, he often overlooked the man. Barnabas, the other side. In his patience with people, he was so committed to the man that Paul thought, you're overlooking the mission. So who's right here? For whatever reason, Mark quits. The reality is that he quit. And Barnabas says, hey, in this next go-around, Paul, I think we really ought to take Mark. We really ought to take him because I think he'd be good, and I think it'd be good for him. And Paul says, there's not a chance. No way, not after what happened. Who's right here? What's more important, the mission of God or the man of God? What's right, this passion for the gospel or this patience that comes as a result of the gospel? What's right to leave one for the sake of the 99 or to leave the 99 for the sake of the one? What do you think? How many think, oh, Paul was right? It's the mission, the mission of God. Okay, nobody. So everyone thinks Barnabas. And who thinks Barnabas is right? Okay, a, a few of us, okay. This is a series on Barnabas after all, right? What's interesting, because it, it says Barnabas just took Mark and left, but it says in verse 40, Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. I'm not altogether sure who's right or wrong, but one thing is true. One thing is true that Barnabas saw the failures of Mark and said, I will not give up on him. I cannot give up on him. Because his nature as a courage pourer was to say, Paul, don't you get it? Don't you understand? Fifteen years ago, you were in the same shoes as Mark. Nobody gave you a chance. No one believed in you. You were persecuting the church. Ain't nobody give you a Second thought, but I didn't. Look what became of you. That's Mark. When I look at Mark, I see you. And he was willing to put himself out there. Because I think this is something that so many of us need, isn't it? So many people that we know need a person who will see them and not count their past against them. I know the things that you did in the past. I know your failures. I know you quit. I know you sold us out. I know you hurt people. But listen, I'm going to give you another chance because God hasn't given up on you. Therefore, I will not give up on you. Aren't all of us here because somebody believed that God wasn't finished with you? Because someone reached out to you? Because someone cared about you? Because someone loved you enough to say, I'm not going to stop praying for you? Even though I see the things that you do, I know the screw-ups that you do, I know the things that you did at the weekend, I see the things that you did at the club, I saw what you did with that person, I know all of these things, but I'm not going to give up on you. Isn't that what it means to be the people of God? To believe in a God of second and third and another chance? Even if it means being misunderstood, even if it means people making fun, even if people say, you know what, then I can't be your friend. Isn't that what it means to believe in the gospel of multiple chances? That's what Barnabas did. He said, I look, at, I look at Mark and I see Paul. I see a world changer and I can't just give up on that. Uh, Olivia, my, uh, my wife Olivia got, um, s some time ago she got this note from someone and 
Uh, I read all of her notes, and she reads all of my notes, and she knows all of my email passwords and all that stuff, and so we have free reign to read. But um, there's this one sister who was uh, writing, she wrote this letter to Olivia, and she said, uh, she's, she, she's not here anymore, she's uh, since moved on, but uh, she said, I think about you every month, right? once a month, I think about you. I thought, that's kind of interesting. When do you think about her, is what I would ask, and then she would reply through the words of this letter. I remember a long time ago, I was struggling with a lot of stuff in my life, sin, overwhelmed with my own brokenness, with my own situation, with my own failures, my fears, and one day our church was having communion, and I just felt like there's no chance, no way I can take communion. And so Olive went up to her, and they started talking, and this girl, his sister, is crying, and she's saying, am I even worthy to come up and receive these elements that represent what Christ has done for me? And Olive, speaking the gospel truth, this is for sinners, for people who know they can't do it on their own, people who know that we're not good enough, who know that we've messed up, who know that even our goodness disqualifies us and our badness disqualifies us. That's why it's grace. Just speaking the good news, prayed with her, tasted the tears in her mouth. And then this girl said, and you waited, and you waited, and you waited until I was ready. And then together we walked up to take communion. She said, every time I take communion at my church, I always think about you because you would not give up on me and you did not give up on me and you showed me that there was a God who was going to give me another chance. Isn't that what we all need? We all need someone who's going to remind us that God hasn't given up on you, that God's going to give you another chance. The person sitting next to you might be needing that reminder. Person sitting in front of you, behind you, whoever they might be, might need a reminder that God hasn't given up on them. And this is what courage pourers understand, that every person deserves another chance as long as they're breathing because God hasn't given up on them. That's the first thing. Second thing that we see, that courage pourers know that it takes courage to pour courage. It's been 15 years that these guys have been running together. Well, there was a about a 10-year break, but these guys have been pushing each other, challenging each other, encouraging each other, fighting for one another, praying for one another. And here in this moment, they both have their conviction. Paul says, everything I am for the kingdom cause, we got to go, leave him behind. And Barnabas says, everything I am for the kingdom cause, we got to take him because there's no telling what God can do through him. And so it says here in verse 39, they had such a sharp disagreement. Okay, the language here is that it's in the imperfect tense, meaning they're continually arguing. It wasn't, it wasn't this like nice, hey, Paul, I think we ought to take Mark. Yeah, Barnabas, I don't think that's a good idea. He sold us out last time. Why don't we pray about it together then? It wasn't like that. It was like, dude, we got to take him. No, I'm not taking him. We got to take Mark. You go on without him then, without me then. I ain't going to, I'm not going to take Mark. We've got, it's this fight. It was so sharp, literally sharp, that it cut the core of their hearts. You believe that? This is your 
this is your, I mean, Paul and Barnabas synonymous with being friends through thick and thin. And yet here they have such a disagreement that it cuts their hearts. Because in that moment, Barnabas is so committed to pouring courage into this young Mark's life that he says, I'm, gonna, I'm, willing, to, I'm willing to give up everything. You know how much courage it takes for him to say, Paul, then you go your way and I'm going to go mine. It says it was not only a sharp disagreement, but it says they parted company. Literally, they were torn apart. This is not a peaceful, amicable, the Lord bless you and keep you, Barnabas. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace as you go forth. Amen, brother Saul. Amen. And, and to you also, may the grace of our Lord Jesus. It wasn't like that. He risked, they risked everything to throw his lot in with this deserted, spoiled, quitting Mark because he believed in a dream and a destiny that God had for him. There are people in your life that you feel like God is calling you to, but you don't want to put courage into them. You don't want to encourage them. Because you think, oh my gosh, it's going to be painful. That guy's so annoying. You know what? Every time I talk to her, she just, she just shoots me down, gives me a blank stare. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to take that. I've been hurt too many times trying to do that. Can I tell you something? A courage pourer understands that it's going to take courage in order to pour courage into someone's life. As uh, Brother Seho announced, that we're going to be doing this angel tree project. And I remember we did this years back, and we were going to the homes of children whose parents were in jail. And I remember, man, these are not even like the people who are in jail. It's just their family. But I remember driving to their houses with some youth students, and I'm like scared. I'm like, man, the apple may not fall far from the tree. What if these kids try to like mug me or something or, or hold me up? It was scary. Prison fellowship is a ministry that goes into prisons. And they share the hope of Christ with people in prison. And they see so many people coming to know the Lord through this message that God has not given up on you. That you may be in prison, but you could still be free. Isn't that the great message of Shawshank? You could be out of prison and still be in chains. You could be in chains, but you could still be free. That freedom doesn't come from any place else but through the gospel, whom the sun sets free, is free indeed. And there is a, a basketball player, streetball legend. His name is Grayson Boucher, but his streetball name is the professor. <laughs> He's this like 5'10", 6-foot uh, Caucasian guy. He doesn't look much like a baller until he gets on the court, and then he, like, kills people, straight make people look bad. Like, <laughs> there's the one video where he's, like, playing in, like, uh, Huntington Beach or something, and he, like, crosses this guy up, and the guy dislocates his shoulder. It's crazy. It's really funny, actually, because the guy's, like, talking all this smack. But these guys in, in, in prison, they all know the professor, and so through prison fellowship ministries, they called the professor, who's a follower of Christ. He gave his life to the Lord, and he's been to, like, 40 different countries playing basketball, schooling kids, and then telling them about Jesus. It's Kind of a good method, right? You kill him at something, and then you resurrect him through the gospel. That's what he does. So um, he gets in the prison, and the guy comes, and he's like, Grayson, hi, my name is uh, such and such. I'm the rec director. And he's like, um, yeah, please be careful. Yeah. Um, be on your guard. 
Uh, be respectful to these people because a lot of them have anger management issues. Right? So he goes in, he's like, okay, you know, first time playing ball in a prison. And he goes and he starts talking to these people and they're like, yeah, I'm in for uh, uh, three counts of murder. I'm in for uh, three counts of aggravated assault, right? Ro armed robbery, all these different things. I'm not up for parole until 2041, right? Three life sentences in jail. And he's going to step onto the basketball court with them and he's going to like bounce the ball off their head and make them look silly. It's crazy stuff. But they're all, when they see him walk on the court, they're like, oh, it's the professor, it's the professor. Like they all know who he is. He comes out and, and he like plays ball with them and one-on-one uh, -on -one with different people. And then each time they, the guy loses, a new guy comes on and they're like, this is the guy, this is the guy. He could actually beat the professor. And the professor like schools him and, and like kicks his butt and all this stuff. And, and after they're done, they're just sitting there and these guys are like, why'd you come? Why'd you, why'd you come here? And he's like, and I came here because I thought maybe my life and my story could impact your life, could make a difference in someone's life. And they're like, man, this is awesome. In prison, we never get opportunities like this, but people like you coming and playing ball with us and, and hanging out with us, like, this is amazing. One guy's like, everyone else comes in here, they look at us, they're like, they're criminals, they're animals. They're arrogant. They have no hope. But you came in here and you told us that there's hope for us. Like you inspired us. These people are just going on and on stories about how like him showing up like gave us a reason to believe. Like gave us a reason to live. The one thing he gave us was he gave us hope. He gave us hope as he shared the message of the forgiveness of Christ. And as he... Uh, was leaving, you know, he, he does this interview, and you can find it. Don't look at it right now, but you can find it later. He says, uh, I'm not going to lie, when I walked in there, I was so scared. I was scared. These people are mean. They're angry. They've killed people. They've robbed people. But the reality is that each of them is loved by God. That he hasn't given up on them. And that's why we go. Yeah, it's scary. But it takes courage to pour courage. You remember this movie called We Bought a Zoo about this family down on their luck. They decide to buy a zoo. Crazy, right? Go figure. It's called We Bought a Zoo. But they buy a zoo and, and the dad is talking to his kid. And the dad says, I, I forget what the context is, but he basically says, you know, sometimes in life all it takes is 20 seconds of insane courage. And he says, and usually something wonderful will come out of that. What does 20 seconds of insane courage look like for you to be able to pour courage into the life of somebody else? Maybe there's someone on your radar who's here today that you feel like, man, you know what? I want to go and I want to talk to them because I don't know what to say, but maybe, me just go, maybe I'll just go and I'll just say hi, give them a hug. Maybe that's enough. Maybe it's someone who's not here, who hasn't been here for a while, and you're scared to death because you think they burned bridges, and the way that you guys ended wasn't pretty. Maybe insane courage looks like you going and you calling them and saying, hey, or, or texting them, or whatever it is, saying, hey, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. 
that we haven't seen each other in a while, but I still, I still care about you. Maybe it means you take a bunch of food, and, and, and some of our people have done this before, buy a bunch of food, and then you just take it to people who are, who are on the streets and just give it to them, and you, and, you, and you pray for them, and you talk to them. I don't know what it looks like for you to do that, but maybe in our hearts there's something that you know pouring courage looks like for you and for somebody that you once cared about that God is bringing to your mind again. Because what these people in prison needed to know was that we are worth another chance and God hasn't given up on us. And because he hasn't given up on us, there are people who will not give up on us either. Because you know if you want to pour courage into the lives of other people that it takes courage in order to pour courage. That's the second thing. Last thing that we see. Courage pours are needed everywhere by everyone. Courage pours are needed everywhere and by everyone. There is a uh, psychologist, counselor named Larry Crabb. He's an author, wrote some phenomenal books. Um, he was addressing a group of Christian counselors one, uh, one time, and he said, in all my years of counseling people, in all my years of talking with people uh, in a therapy session, he said, the one thing that I'm absolutely convinced that they need more than anything else in the world, and these psychologists, clinical psychologists, counselors, therapists are thinking, yeah, they need us. <laughs> they need counseling. He said, the one thing they need more than anything else is a community of people who will encourage them. You think you got problems? <laughs> you got issues. Man, I need to see a therapist. I need to see a counselor. said, so the one thing you need more than anything else is you need a group of people that are going to pour courage into your life. I'm not talking about friends. You're going to hang out with us, party together, go to movies together, right? go eat together. That's cool. You need stuff like that. But courage-pouring friends, people who will risk themselves to pour courage into your life, who are not afraid to pray for you there, not afraid to share a word with you, not afraid to correct you in order that strength would rise within you. Not just talking about a group of people that get together. Because sometimes what happens in church fellowship halls isn't a whole lot of fellowship. It's just a lot of hanging out. He's not just talking about people getting together. Not even house churches getting together, but house churches that are intentional about doing life together to pour courage into each other's lives. He said, you do that. You get every counseling client in, in, in real-life relationships like that, then we'd be out of jobs. That's what he's saying. He said, that's what we need. What happens here? Who's right? Paul or Barnabas? Well, it doesn't really matter because here... It says in verse 40, uh, in verse 39, Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the brothers, went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Here's what happened. In the great providence of God, it was not God's desire that one mission trip with Paul and Barnabas and Mark go out to strengthen the churches. The mission of God was that two teams would go out from Antioch. Because the churches everywhere needed encouragement, and there was one person here who needed encouragement. And so Paul goes on this difficult trip. He takes a guy named Silas, who'd become one of the great leaders of the New Testament, and Barnabas takes Mark, and they go to Cyprus, which is an easier mission trip. 
but just what Mark needs in order to be resurrected from his brokenness, to be restored from his quitting, to be remade by the courage that was poured into his life by Barnabas. Because every single one of us, every single one of us, I don't care who you are or where you've been, what you've done, the mountaintops or the low valleys, every single one of us needs people who are pouring courage into our lives. Isn't that the way it ought to be in the people of God? Not people who are draining courage from us, but pouring courage into your life. One of our uh, people um, ran into someone who used to attend our church, but he doesn't come to our church anymore, and just saw him, and he said, hey, how come you don't come to our church anymore? And the guy said to him, I got drama at work. (laughs) I got drama at home. I don't need more drama at church. Wow. Can I tell you how much I hate that word drama? Hey, DL, have you heard about the drama in our house church? No, I haven't heard of drama. <laughs> call it what it is, okay? Don't call it drama. What is drama? Why? It's drama because you call it drama. Goofball. <laughs> you call it drama. That's why it's dramatic. You make it more than it is. It's just somebody not liking each other. They hating on each other. Call it what it is. It's a conflict. It ain't drama. It's sin. Not drama. Don't call it drama. Then everyone else, ooh, I want to know the drama. That's goofy. That's silly. What's drama? Drama is something you watch on Netflix, something you watch on Hulu, something you watch on Wiki. What do you do with drama? You watch it, and then you gossip about it. That's what drama is. Hey, there's drama in our church. Because you're making a drama. Be part of the solution, not part of the problem then. Call it what it is, and you fix it. You be part of that solution. Don't go talking to other people. You start praying about it and saying, hey, why don't you talk to the person with whom you've got a rift so that you can grow in Christ? Yeah, that's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be pouring courage into each other. It should be different. But the second thing I think about that is, man, it breaks my heart, though, that he would feel that way. Basically what he's saying, the drama with my parents, the drama with my school, the drama with my work, it's no different at church. In a community of courage pourers, shouldn't it be different? And if you don't have anything good to say, Don't say it. Don't say it. Think before you speak, right? Think, is it true? Is it helpful? Is it inspiring? Is it necessary? Is it kind? Think before you speak. You ain't got anything good to say. Don't say it. Don't be part of the problem. You be a courage pourer into the lives of other people. Don't go talking about drama and all that stuff. That's crazy. We talk about drama, (laughs) not the sin. just kidding. But let's just be honest with it. Call it what it is. The world has enough brokenness. The world inflicts enough pain. But you know what? No matter the capacity of pain in our world, of darkness, of injustice, of brokenness in the world, no matter the capacity of our world and of life to hurt people, the capacity of the church to heal is infinitely 
greater. There's nothing like it in all of the world, says one pastor. The beauty of a group of courage pourers is breathtaking. Its power is undeniable. Its potential is limitless. No matter what people bring in in terms of baggage into the church, the capacity and the power of the church to heal is unlike any other. There's nothing like a church when the church is working right. (laughs) When the church is working right. A lot of times, we're broken. We're messed up. It doesn't work right. But when it's working right, guys, there's nothing like it in all the world. And so here they go. Paul takes Silas and raises Silas up to be this great leader of the church. He accomplishes his mission, strengthening those churches, setting up leaders there. And, oh, it was supposed to be three of them going, by the way. They've got a vacuum. They've got a void. They need one more person. Who will he choose? Oh, hey, this guy named Timothy. Let's pick Timothy, and let's take Timothy with us. And as Timothy goes with Paul and Silas, he grows, and he becomes this mighty warrior of a young man, of a pastor who leads and pastors the most influential church in Asia Minor, the church in Ephesus. Paul goes out, and he accomplishes his mission. And then here goes Barnabas, and he goes with Mark, and they go out, and they're preaching the gospel. And as they do, Mark begins to find healing. Can you imagine what it's like when you want to go on a missionary journey with Paul? And Paul says, no, you can't come with us because you sold me out. You left me for dead. So the weight and the burden of that being released as day by day he spends time with the courage poorer Barnabas. As he speaks into his life, says, you are worthy. You have a destiny. You have a purpose. You have a plan. No matter your failures, God is bigger than your mistakes. Jesus is bigger than your sin. He's bigger than your desertion. He's bigger than all of these things. And as a result, this man goes on and he grows to become this mighty warrior for God. He gets connected with the leader of the church in Jerusalem, Peter. They become best friends, and Peter becomes the primary source material for Mark to write the gospel that bears his name. God used the brokenness and the pain and the disagreement and the rift and the sin of these two great leaders in order to accomplish his greater purposes to help us to understand that everywhere people need encouragement and every person needs encouragement. Even though, even though the best of men were but mere men, sinners, sinful people who failed, who messed up, are broken. And it's not simply that God used them in spite of their brokenness. The reason God used them is the same reason God uses you and me, even in our sin. It's because every one of the people to whom Paul, Silas, Timothy, Barnabas, Mark would go needed encouragement. And God said, I'm going to pour courage into their lives even if your life isn't up to par. I'm going to let you know that I've still got a mission for you because I love these people. As great as a community of courage pourers is going to be and necessary to your life. Yeah, don't make them more than they ought to be because the best of them at the end of the day are at best mere mortals and they will fail you also. But there is one who walked this earth who's more than just a man. 
There's one who came down, God incarnate, born to a virgin, born in human flesh in order that he could live this life, be subject to all of the need for courage pouring that you and I needed. But he took all of the sin of Barnabas, of Paul, of Mark, of all of us upon himself so that we could see. He, 2,000 years ago, looked at a thief on a cross who had made a bunch of bad mistakes. And he said, you're only one choice away from redemption. One choice away. And in that moment, in that split-second decision, maybe 20 seconds of insane courage, it changed his life forever. He's been doing that time and time again these past 2,000 years, and he's still doing it today. He can do that in you. He can do that through you. But let him be your ultimate hope. Let him fill you in order that you can be one who puts courage into the lives of other people. You take that step, there's no telling. The next Mark, the next Paul, the next person you talk to could be the next great history maker that this world is crying out for. Let's pray together. Is there someone in your life that you feel like needs encouragement today? Can you take a couple moments to pray for them right now? Just asking the Lord. Father, open their hearts so that right now, even supernaturally, you would pour courage into their hearts. And then maybe there's someone that God is calling you to go to this week. Right now, make a decision in your mind that in this 20-second moment of insane courage, I'm going to take that step. Maybe you feel like, maybe you feel like Mark. You feel like you've quit. You feel like you abandoned God. You abandoned the mission of God. You abandoned your church. I don't know what you feel like you've done. But can I remind you that the gospel is a gospel of second, third, fourth, hundred, billion, trillion, gazillion chances. And as long as you're alive, it's a sign that it's not too late for you. All of your bad choices, your one bad choice can be redeemed by one courageous choice that you make right now to trust in the Lord. And maybe some of you here today need to make that decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior and as your Lord. You've never done that before. You've gone, gone to church, but there's no fruit of new life in you. There's no change from the inside out. You can open your heart up to the Lord Jesus. Acknowledge that you have sinned, you've messed up, that you need Him in your life to make you right, to make you clean, and to be the bridge so that you can get to the perfect and holy God. This would be a great time to pray. Put your trust in Him right now. Let's pray for a minute or two, honestly and earnestly, praying to the Lord. Lord, that I would be an encouragement. Lord, that you would bring people into my life to pour courage into me. I need it. Lord, that I would be a courage pourer for other people. Let's pray like that for a minute or so. I'll pray for us and then we'll continue to worship. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, there are some in here who feel like if I don't find hope today, that's it. I pray through your spirit that you would speak to such people now. Let them know they're not alone. Let them know you haven't given up on them. Let them know that you care for them and that you love them an everlasting love that they will never be able to outrun. Others of us in here are here and we're burdened because there's someone in our lives whether we like them or not man, you're just putting on our hearts. We see their face, we see their name, we replay events, our heart is moved question is, what will we do now with what we have been given? Will we take a step of faith, risking ridicule, risking their anger in order to pour courage, knowing that maybe, just maybe, you might use our obedience to do something great. Others of us, we want to be a courage pourer, but we just, we don't know how. We pray that you would help us to be prayerful and that your spirit would call to mind this message so that as we live this week, when we see someone, maybe it's a look in their eyes, maybe it's a word that they say, maybe it's a tweet that they tweet, whatever it is, may we then feel the conviction of the spirit to say, this is your moment, this is your moment. Go and you do what you were put in this moment to do. Father, help us. We need you. We're desperately in need of you. We need to be a community of courage pourers. Help us that it will be different amongst us. Brokenness in the world, healing in the arms of your church. Imperfect though we may be, let that be our mission, our aim, our legacy. Help us, Lord. We need you. We thank you. We love you, Jesus, because you have loved us first. And even in our failing, you still love us and pursue us. For that, we thank you so much for never giving up on us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.